This is the Fog Pod, an extension of the Fog Horn. This is the Fog Pod. We're reporting on the reporting of the Fog Horn. We're reporting on the reporting of the Fog Horn. This is the Fog Pod. We're reporting on the reporting of the Fog Horn. Welcome to this week's episode of the Fog Pod. I'm sitting down with Laura Bazelon, and Laura, you've got you got a lot of titles. Um, could you introduce yourself to our audience? My name is Lara Bazelon. I'm an associate professor at the University of San Francisco School of Law, where I direct the Criminal and Juvenile Justice Clinics and the Racial Justice Clinic. And I'm the author of a book called Rectify the Power of Restorative Justice After Wrongful Conviction. Mm -hmm. And are you still practicing law? I practice law with my students in Mm -hmm. the clinics. So my job at the law school is to teach law students how to be trial lawyers. And we try cases usually in misdemeanor court in San Francisco Superior Court. Mm -hmm. You're not just a professor. You're not just um, a former public defendant. But also you've been publishing a lot, both articles for The Atlantic and in The New York Times. You've been really outspoken in terms of like public discourse and not just academia and not just in the courts. Is that something that's particularly important to you? It is. So you're right. I started as a deputy federal public defender in Los Angeles where Mm -hmm. I tried serious felony cases. And then after that, I went on to be the director of a small innocence project in Los Angeles. And then I came here. Throughout the latter part of my career, though, I have been writing not just scholarship for academia, but also pieces for an audience of non-lawyers about legal issues that I think are really important for the public to understand, Mm -hmm. that I think a lawyer can break down in a way that an average person can get without having to have a bunch of fancy degrees. Mm -hmm. Some of the writing that I do is also personal essays, and so my kids and also my former spouse have featured in some of Mm -hmm. the essays that I've written, and I do feel like it's part of a continuum about how we think through different ways of understanding not just the criminal justice system, but family systems and the way that we relate to one another as human beings. You come from a family of lawyers, judges, all of that. Uh, What's, like, Thanksgiving like like so my family is a very spirited family that is steeped in not just the law my mom is a doctor we have a lot of extremely outspoken people there is not really a quiet person in the room and Mm -hmm. growing up it was very rowdy at the dinner table and at the breakfast table but it was also a place of really interesting conversations about current events and politics and justice, my parents were really concerned that we understand from an early age, not just that the United States was a special place in a democracy, but also that it had systemic injustices that needed to be addressed. Mm-hmm. From a young age, was it that they wanted you to become a lawyer, as was mentioned in the article, or did they have in mind public defending or things like that? Or was that something that you kind of took to heart? You know, my parents never actually told any of us that we had to be anything, although my grandfather, who was the judge, Mm. very famously would constantly (laughs) tell us that we had to grow up and be lawyers. And apparently it worked because I have three sisters, so there are four of us total and three are lawyers. Mm. So he obviously exercised some influence. I think my parents were more interested in us having 
careers that would make sure that we were self-sufficient, that we could support ourselves and be independent women, and also that we would do work that was not just meaningful to us, but also meaningful in terms of helping people who were voiceless and didn't really have anybody to advocate for them. Yeah, that was something that really stuck out when I was reading the Foghorn article is that you were in a position of privilege, but then you decided to go into something that helped others and fought against disenfranchising and things like that. One of the things that I love the most about USF is the social justice mission, and I think the school is deeply true to that mission. So the law school gives me a lot of autonomy in terms of the cases that we take on, and we're not limited to a certain kind of case or a certain kind of client when it seems like there's a need. So for example, there was a law that was passed recently that allowed people who'd been convicted as teenagers of very serious crimes to have early parole hearings rather than spend the rest of their lives in prison. And there's a need for those men and women to have lawyers advocating for them at these parole hearings. And that's a role that we've moved into Phil. It's a new project for the clinic and it's very much aligned with the school's mission. And the school has been really supportive of that and of other kinds of projects that we've taken on that weren't exactly what was happening before I got there, but are still in keeping with this idea that we serve people who are poor, predominantly people who are color of color, and people who really don't have anyone else to advocate for them. So that kind of is a good segue into how did this case that you write about in your book, Rectify, uh, how did this case come to you? Well, the case that inspired me to write the book came to me when I was directing the Innocence Project at Loyola Law School in Los Angeles. And basically what happened was that there was a man with the name Cash Register, which is his real name, who had been convicted of murdering a white man. He's African-American in 1979 and had been in prison for over three decades. And another person who he'd met in prison had become a jailhouse lawyer for him and advocated for him and believed in Cash's innocence. And then when this man, Keith, was released himself from prison on parole, he continued to advocate for Cash. And he actually wrote a petition to a judge arguing that Cash was in fact innocent and gathering all kinds of information to show that the witnesses who had testified against Cash at his trial so long ago were not telling the truth. And the judge was convinced enough that she decided that Cash needed an attorney to represent him. And our project, the Innocence Project, was appointed. And so that's how I came to be Cash's lawyer and how we took on that case. After we were appointed, we spent the next year in investigating it and finding even more evidence to show that the witnesses were not telling the truth and also evidence to show that the district attorney's office had known of information that showed that Cash was actually innocent and had hid that information. And so we were able to bring all of that to light in what essentially amounted to a retrial but is called an evidentiary hearing. And then in 2013, he was exonerated. This case that you've chosen to write about, is it um, a good symbol for a greater problem like is it is it more than just cash register's story or is it it is and actually cash's story really only appears in the introduction as just a way to explain to the reader why mm. i got interested in the subject in the first place it is unfortunately all too typical of what can happen in a wrongful conviction case and wrongful conviction cases happen all the time so in mm -hmm. 2016 an average of three people were set free every week from prison, 168 total in one year. Mm -hmm. And I think there are over 2,200 people who have been exonerated since they started keeping track in 1989. After the conviction is overturned, is 
there a search for justice still for those cases? Like, is the case reopened? What's that process like? It really depends. So oftentimes um, in DNA cases, they can maybe match the DNA to the actual perpetrator. Sometimes that person has gone on to commit other crimes. Sometimes that person is deceased. Sometimes that person can be caught and re-prosecuted. In cases without DNA evidence, it's also often very difficult, especially years and years later, to find the actual person. So in Cash Register's case, the actual person who robbed and murdered this man, Jack Sasson, has never been caught and likely never will be. And so the victim's family doesn't get justice in that way that the criminal justice system is supposed to deliver. So then what ends up happening a lot of times in these cases is that the crime victims and the exonerees try to come together to sort of see if they can find a way to make some sense of what's happened and create their own kind of justice. And that's really what the book is about. You said that they came together, but like in which ways were you a part of that? The story that I followed the most closely in the book, but it's one of many, involves a different case. It involves a woman named Janet Burke who was brutally raped at a daycare center where she worked in 1984 when she was 20. She's white. The rapist was a black man. And when Thomas Hainsworth was arrested at the age of 18, the attacks in the in Richmond County and the adjoining county continued and 12 more women were attacked. In December of that year, a man named Leon Davis Jr. was arrested and then the attacks ceased. But no one really put two and two together. And although Thomas was insistent that he was innocent, no one believed him. And it took two and a half decades before DNA evidence came to light that proved that in Janet's case, the rapist was in fact Leon Davis Jr. And it was not Thomas Hainsworth. After he was finally released, Janet felt all kinds of emotions, including just fear and shame and guilt. Thomas's attorney, this remarkable woman named Sean Armbrust, thought that perhaps it might be healing not just for Janet but also for Thomas if they met each other. It was this extremely emotional reunion where Janet wept and really asked for Thomas's forgiveness and and Thomas gave his forgiveness really freely because I think he realized that she had been a victim too and that he looked at her and saw a fellow victim. And as a result of that connection they have formed this really remarkable friendship and they've gone on to do a lot of advocacy work around wrongful convictions talking about the problems and why some of them can be fixed through better laws and um, better practices by police and they've gone on to become social justice advocates as well as really partners in each other's lives which is pretty amazing one part of the conviction process is obviously the police, which we've talked about, but also the prosecutors in that and how they conducted a trial and things like that. Is that also a big issue in terms of how these convictions happen? The prosecution has this almost schizophrenic job where they're trying to convict your client and put your client away unless it suddenly appears that maybe your client isn't the person who committed the crime, at which point they're supposed to back down and concede a mistake. And that those two things really are, I think, psychologically at odds with each other. And the legal system rewards prosecutors who rack up convictions and does not reward prosecutors who, who lose trials or concede error. So is, is there a way to change that sort of system in order to, like lessen that incentive? I think there is, and I think it's starting to happen. We have to change the narrative about what it means to be a good prosecutor. So now what we're seeing is this wave of elections. 
a small wave, but still a wave where people are running for office for district attorney and winning who have never been prosecutors, who have been lifelong public defenders or civil rights attorneys. And they come at it from this very different perspective of wanting to reform the system. At the same time, what you see is an electorate that's much more evolved in what they think a prosecutor's job is, an electorate that is very much aware of wrongful convictions and aware that we have a problem in this country of mass incarceration and the racialization of the system such that people who are black and brown are charged and convicted and arrested at far higher rates and are fed up with that, are fed up with the unfairness and fed up with the cost and fed up with the lack of results. And what people do want to see, I think, more is prosecutors who embrace this role, not of being the toughest, but of being the fairest and doing the right thing. Does this sort of perspective change how you're teaching future uh, prosecutors or public defendants? It has changed my perspective a lot. I've now come to a place where I really want people to come to my clinic who want to do all kinds of work, including being prosecutors. And I'm very proud of the students I've taught who've gone on to become prosecutors because I believe that they are ethical. And I think they understand their obligation and they've seen the other side, which is so important in having empathy and also just having a 360 degree view of the system rather than just a narrow view of your own particular role. And it's so important, I think, from the very beginning for people to get trained properly in whatever it is they want to do in the criminal justice system. So the part that I can play in that for both sides is very meaningful to me. What can we as like an electorate and just a general population who's not necessarily directly involved with the law system, how can we help in this? It's so important. And I think what was happening for a really long time in most cases, for example, where people are running for district attorney, which is most counties in the United States, people just voted for the incumbent. And often the incumbent was not even challenged. And these are down ballot races. You know what the ballot looks like when we get it. Um, When you walk into the polling place or you get it in the mail, it's just sort of overwhelming and you just start checking boxes because you want to get out of there. And it's important to educate yourself, especially when there is a contested race, and read the blurbs that come with the candidates, Google them, see what their positions are, and really follow as much as you can what's going on in the larger system without obviously allowing it to swallow your entire day and be an educated voter. And it's really that decision by voters to educate themselves and engage with activists that has led to this small sea change that we're seeing of prosecutors like Larry Krasner in Philadelphia or Kim Fox in Chicago or Kim Ogg in Austin, people who wouldn't have won 10 years ago and ran on reform platforms winning because voters were paying attention to those down ballot races and they were voting. Okay, thank you so much. You're so welcome. Where can we get your book? So the book is available at bookstores. It's also available on Amazon. So you can just go on Amazon and type in Rectify and then restorative justice and the book will pop up and you can order it in the Kindle version or the hardback version. So, and you can also get it through various independent booksellers. And I do believe and hope there is a copy in this very library. And I know there are copies in the law school. Okay, thank you so much. Thank you to Laura Bazelon for sitting down with me, to The Shores Trio for our intro-outro music. You can listen to their album on Spotify. And Megan Caruana for being our audio engineer. <laughs>